the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The federal carbon tax came into effect in Ontario and three other provinces on Monday. As of April 1st, prices went up at the gas pumps and for home heating costs. But the feds are also providing a tax rebate to offset the extra costs. Ontario is subject to the tax because the provincial PCs don't have their own carbon pricing program in place after doing away with the wind government's cap-and-trade program. Libby Snymer was joined by NDP MPP and energy critic Peter Tabbins and Ontario Environment Minister Rod Phillips to discuss. We don't believe the government's numbers, and frankly, most people don't believe that when a government's going to tax you, they're going to put more money in your pocket. Um, But we also don't understand uh, the government's approach because unlike the federal Liberals, we've put together a program that fights climate change, but doesn't involve a carbon tax. So uh, we just today, Libby, is a good day for Ontario drivers because we cancelled finally the Drive Clean program. That was a program that everybody admitted had been long past its due date. It was $40 million that was costing drivers and millions of people having spent hours getting lined up for, for a test that even the leader of the Green Party and the former Liberal Environment Minister said wasn't working. But it was a, it was a kind of uh, program that, that, that wasn't working. This carbon tax is another thing. It's, it's going to be a tax on everything, it's, uh, almost five cents on gas, seven cents on diesel, and that's just the beginning. Um, our financial accountability officer says it'll be $648 by 2022. And, uh, and and again, back to you know what what uh, Minister McKenna is saying. You know, respectfully, I don't think many people think that a government's going to tax you and you're going to end up with more money at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You don't believe that they're going to give those rebates out, or you think that maybe just in an election year. Well, it is it is an election year, and I think a lot of people are suspicious of politicians on a good day, but particularly in an election year. And uh, and and also, people are confused. Uh, you know, you're taking money away, and then you're giving money back. Um, it's supposed to be to change behavior because they don't want people to drive cars, and I don't know what they expect people to do in Canada in terms of heating their homes. But but at the end of the day, uh, Libby, uh, we have a plan that we launched in November that is going to tackle climate change. We already know that Ontario's done more to fight climate change than any other province, uh, where we've done more progress in terms of GHG reduction than the target that uh, the federal government set. So this isn't a tax we need, and it's not a tax that's uh, going to help the environment. Okay, right now I am going to bring in Peter Tabbins, and he is the NDP critic on climate change. What is your reaction? We actually need an effective climate strategy here in Ontario, an effective climate plan. We don't have one now. Uh, What was put forward by the Conservatives was roundly panned. Uh, It's a plan to pay big emitters for them to reduce emissions, something that was tried in Australia and failed. It's a plan that won't actually protect us or our children or our grandchildren from climate change. Um, He's playing around at the edges, but it's not actually taking on the problem. And I when I talk to people, they want to make sure that our, our lakes are clean, our rivers are clean, and that climate change is dealt with. And we certainly won't see it with the plan that the Conservatives have brought forward. He says that we are actually doing better than the other provinces. Is that not the case? Well, we have one of the weakest climate plans in the world. We're, we're right down there with China and Russia. Uh, and it's recognized internationally that we're really a poor performer. So if we're doing better in Ontario than the rest of the country, 
that just says we're we're way at the back of the pack. Uh, the the previous government did put some things into effect, uh, not as much as they should have, uh, and certainly this government is going to is not going to help us. In fact, this government by abandoning the cap-and-trade program, has put us into a more expensive program with the federal carbon tax. And on top of all that, Libby, we're going to pay $30 million for this lawsuit against the federal government. Uh, It's a pretty pricey plan, and we just found out in the papers this morning that the Ford government is going to be launching a television ad campaign against the carbon tax. Um, And we don't know how many millions that is. I mean, that one I don't have a number for. Um, But all of this has a lot to do with the coming federal election and this government spending money, I think, to support the federal Conservative Party. And I don't think people in Ontario see that as a good use of their tax dollars. I certainly don't. That was Ontario Environment Minister Rod Phillips and NDP MPP and energy critic Peter Tabbins. Libby further explored the small business community's reaction to the new carbon tax and how they think businesses will be affected. She spoke with Dale Marshall, National Climate Program Manager with Environmental Defence, and Ryan Malo, Director of Provincial Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. We've broken it down. We're finding that small businesses are paying about half of the carbon tax, um, but they're only seeing about 7% of the uh, rebate money coming back, the rest of that going to households. So it becomes yet another policy where small businesses are left holding the bill. And that's bad enough on its own, but in the greater picture, that's on top of the first year of seven years in a row of CPP increases we're seeing. It's coming off of a year with a major spike in the minimum wage, coming off of years of increased hydro costs. So all in all, it's just a, a sort of snowball effect and yet another thing hammering small businesses in the province. Okay, let's bring in Dale Marshall. So what is your reaction to what you've been hearing from Ryan, what you've been hearing from our callers who generally are not thrilled about a new tax? Right. I mean, Ryan has a point in terms of the transparency when it comes to small and medium-sized enterprises. We still don't know how that money is going to be redistributed to um, to those businesses. Um, what we do know a lot more about is how the rebates will affect households. And we know already exactly how much um, households are going to get, depending on which province they live in and depending on uh, the size of the family. And so essentially, this is, this, this is a measure that's going to be um, that's that's going to put uh, seven out of ten families uh, in in the black. That's going to it's going to help them more than it's going to hurt them in terms of increased fuel prices. What makes you believe that particular math? Well, I mean, the government showed the data on this. Like as I said before, there is a lack of transparency when it comes to SMEs, um, but. The, they laid out the the data with respect to fuel usage in Canada. All that data is publicly available. Um, so, I mean, people can decide, and this is mostly because of rhetoric from those who oppose this measure. People can decide that this is a tax grab or this is, you know, there's no way I'm going to get that money back. But, you know, the government is, is doing this. They are They have shown their numbers on with respect to the rebate to individuals and households. Um, so, and, and again, like what I would go back to overall is like, this is a measure that's, it's not all we need, but it is a measure that we need in order to, 
to tackle climate change, in order to improve the health of Canadians, in order to make renewable energy more affordable. I mean, this, these, we have, you know, according to the science, we have 11 years to turn this thing around or else we're going to see disastrous impacts around the world. And, and so this is a, this to me seems like a measure that makes sense, especially since most people are going to be better off financially in addition to the, the benefits of actually dealing with carbon pollution. But we absolutely agree that we need something to tackle climate change. And I agree that there's serious urgency there. But this policy unfairly burdens small businesses without tackling the greater problem. I don't think this is going to be it. There, there are going to be other policies that come in. And the question is going to be, how does that impact uh, the small business community as well? Dale Marshall, what would you like to leave us with on this? We're in a crisis. We have to deal with this problem. Um, we can't leave any tools in the toolbox. And so carbon price is going to be a part of it, as well as other measures that are going to have to come into place. Um, and not only BC, but countries around the world have shown that they can put those into place and still have um, strong economies uh, and, and, and good standards of living. And Ryan, bottom line on the impact on your members? Uh, it's going to be significant. I think we're going to see it uh, start to increase over time as the carbon tax increases. And what we would encourage the federal government to do is to regroup, uh, talk with those provinces that have the federal carbon backstop and find a solution that uh, works for everybody and isn't just one size fits all. That was National Climate Program Manager with Environmental Defense, Dale Marshall, and Ryan Malo, the Director of Provincial Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Monday, the SNC-Lavalin scandal continued to twist and turn its way through the news headlines. Former Trudeau Principal Secretary Gerald Butts delivered texts and emails to the Parliamentary Justice Committee to rebuild bought evidence submitted by former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould the week before. The evidence from Wilson-Raybould included that much-publicized recording of her December phone call with the clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick. The day before Trudeau ousted Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott from caucus, Libby spoke with David Ball, the Toronto Star's political reporter in Vancouver, following his interview with Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, well, it was in the context of uh, her own First Nation uh, near Campbell River through her feast at an honoring uh, big house ceremony. And so she was. She told me she was feeling very grounded as a result of that experience and also that she um, has a lot more to tell, as she said before, but she's absolutely ready to do that now. Um, she felt like the kind of going back to her community where she obviously wasn't facing a lot of the hard criticism that she's been facing over things like the recording and and her handling of this, she was just among supporters. So I think it really made her feel emboldened and grounded in her kind of traditions and and culture. But uh, she basically said she had no regrets about what she did as Attorney General and also that she she basically plans to continue speaking, quote, her truth as long as she's allowed to. Did you get any sense of what this new other information that she wants to talk about would be? I mean, it it was after she was uh, moved or shuffled in cabinet. Uh, Not at all. Um, for all the criticism she's been getting about uh, breaching cabinet solidarity, um, which is sort of the unity of their decisions as an executive of our government, 
um, she would not go anywhere near the question of cabinet confidence, which is the sort of secrecy of those decisions. So all she wanted to talk to me about is that she did have more to say, that she was absolutely ready, why she was back home, but uh, unfortunately uh, was unable to go to the place of what's next, what she has to say, which I think we all need to know. Did you get any sense? Did you ask her uh, how she felt about the possibility of being kicked out of caucus? Uh, no, but she's still committed to running with the Liberals. Um, so I don't, I think that she would like to avoid that is my impression. She's, for all the harm that she's done to Trudeau, I don't think her beef is at all with the Liberals. Um, when she kind of got involved and ran for them back in 2015 and, and kind of chaired their conference in 2014, she, uh, she interviewed me then and I was, I asked her, you know, why are you doing this? And she said she had conditions like, uh, their criticism of their past Indigenous policies. Uh, she's always been critical of the Indian Act. My impression is very much that uh, that she doesn't have a beef with the party, um, but is also unwilling to kind of toe the line uh, on something that she feels was quite wrong. Some commentators have said this is a coup d'etat. Clearly, she wants to get rid of Justin Trudeau. Did you get any sense of that? No, not at all. I, I, she wasn't able to wade into the political details, unfortunately, so only so much we can sort of discern from the tea leaves. But, uh, you know, the mood of the place with like about five or six hundred supporters and kind of her conversations around the table, um, the general mood that people were saying was, you know, why is Trudeau being so stupid? He just needs to apologize. Like the beef isn't with him. <laughs> so there, there was a sense of the tactical errors that uh, Gerald Butts uh, admitted to uh, maybe extending a bit higher here and... Uh, so I didn't get the sense that the mood in the room was anti-liberal by any stretch. There is a path out, I think, for Trudeau, but um, he so far hasn't uh, been willing to take a, the sort of more contrite uh, and apologetic step here. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, they are hurting in the polls. Uh, even Jagmeet Singh, according to Angus Reid Institute, is ahead in approval ratings of Trudeau. Uh, considering his struggles, I think that should be pretty worrying. But um you know, I, I wouldn't also throw out the idea that there may be some quiet supporters inside the Liberal caucus who, uh, who who may be quite upset about this. And there's a few that we who are you know quite prominent and popular who have said very little um, about uh, about this affair. We've had a lot of outspoken ones uh, kind of tweeting and making uh, sort of smears on her. But I wouldn't count out that there being a very quiet uh, pressure inside. The question is: Is Trudeau going to listen to his uh, best advisors, or is he going to listen to sort of the insider club? Toronto Star political reporter David Ball. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Tuesday was National Caregivers Day. Here in Toronto, Mayor John Tory honoured the many caregivers out there and celebrated their huge contribution to society. If we didn't have people who are willing to give up their time and care for their loved ones who are no longer able to care for themselves, it would cost our health care system between 24 and $31 billion a year. We know from a report by the Canadian Institute for Health Information that at least one in four Canadians are caregivers who devote on average 19 hours a week to caregiving duties and one in 10 give at least 30 hours a week. The same report found that more than a quarter of informal caregivers are in distress. And if their loved one has dementia, that figure rises to almost half. It's also not surprising that many caregivers are at an increased risk for depression due to how drastically their lifestyles change with little time for themselves and developing their own social 
individual lives. Libby spoke with a panel of experts, longtime caregiver Sal Amenta, Carrie Lockie, the CEO Circle of Care, which is part of the Sinai Health System, and Jane Medes, lawyer for the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. We see a lot of um, people who are struggling in the community. So generally when they contact us, uh, they're sort of at their wit's end. They're probably trying to get someone into long-term care or trying to deal with the uh, home care system and are being told that, you know, they have to wait, that they can't get the sufficient care. They just have to be, you know, accept what is being given them. And often people are at the breaking point or past the breaking point and are, you know, doing things like abandoning people in hospital. Or I was going to ask about that. There mm-hmm. seems to have been a rash of that. And, you know, when people talk about abandoning someone in the hospital, you know, in general, that's really not truly what they're doing. What they're saying is, is they can no longer provide that care. The system is broken and they have no choice but to rely upon the hospital system because it's the only place you can sort of take someone and possibly get them to stay there. You can't drop someone off at a long-term care home and have them stay because there's no beds and they're not allowed to do that, right? So it it is often a, a situation where they just cannot physically, mentally provide that care, and the only safe place they can think of is to take someone to a hospital. And the conundrum is is that in many of these cases, if they took, they're saying, if I take that person home, I would owe that person a duty uh, to provide care. And there's actually a criminal code offense called failing to provide the necessaries. So they're saying, we can no longer meet our duty to that person. They are far beyond our, you know, ability. And, you know, we have a public health care system. It's supposed to provide this care, and yet it doesn't. And so there's this really big, you know, people say, oh, you're abandoning, you're refusing to take them home. What you're having people saying is that we are no longer equipped to provide that level of care, and yet the system's saying, well, we don't care, just do it anyway. Carrie Lucky, what kind of help do you provide at the Circle of Care, and what do you see uh, by the time people get to you? The Ontario Caregiver Organization, which has uh, been created in the spring of 2018, I think is a very good first step going forward with respect to recognizing caregivers and what they do. Um, But what we need to do is we need to engage caregivers in shaping and advancing our programs. Um, One of the things we do at our organization is we have a patient or a client family and advisory committee because we need to hear from them to help us understand what our programs how our programs need to be tailored to support them. And I do think there needs to be more innovation and development of respite programs for our caregivers. Many caregivers don't want their their loved ones to go into long-term care. They don't necessarily want to bring them to hospitals, but they have no choice. But if we can create more adult day programs or we can look at the value of volunteers and how they can provide respite to their loved ones, those are programs that we need to develop and become more innovative with how we deliver those programs. Sal, can you tell me some of your struggles to get services like that? It's certainly true that uh, the CCAC, when it existed, was not adequate in terms of providing the care and supports that we knew we needed and desperately needed. I'm part of the baby boomers who, in only seven years from now, will be crossing the 80-year-old threshold. 
And that, according to StatsCan, that's about 10 million people beginning to enter that period of time in their lives if they survive that long. And, of course, we all know they're all Zoomer perfect, right? The uh, cover types who don't need any help in any way and uh, are going concern and are healthy and fit as a fiddle. Uh, you catch my irony. Yes, so, I do. Therefore, my big concern that I'm trying to point out to the federal government is when on earth are we going to create that comprehensive strategic plan to deal with the silver tsunami that's going to hit Canada's shores in only six or seven years? I don't think we'll be able to do it the day before. Jane Medes, what would you like to leave us with? I, I think I'd like to say is that if you know someone who's a caregiver, help them out. Um, offer to make a meal, um, offer to go and look after that person because there are lots of people out there that, you know, could provide a helping hand to a neighbor or a relative um, and maybe don't think about it. So I think that we need to think more about that as well. Caregiver Salamenta, Carrie Lucky, the CEO, Circle of Care, part of the Sinai Health System, and lawyer for the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, Jane Medes. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Toronto Mayor John Tory announced on Tuesday he wants the King Street pilot project to become permanent so that streetcars will continue to be given priority on King between Bathurst and Jarvis. According to city staff calculations, restaurants only lost 1.2% in earnings as a result of the King Street pilot, and retail sales have actually increased. Libby spoke with the so-called Mayor of King Street, Al Carbone, and talked Hoffley from the Liberty Village Residents Association. Before we had three or four seatings, and now we're having one and a half if we're lucky. Uh-huh. Like when you come in before theater, everyone's going to the theater. After that crowd leaves, we're, uh, you know, pretty slow. The streets are pretty desolate. It's like after 7 o'clock, is, you know, people don't have to get to work. And if they're gaining one minute or 30 seconds or less, it's not a big, it's a big inconvenience for everyone else. And that's not a, you know, we've been waiting for 15, 16 months and there have been no compromises. You know, everything that they tried to do, like two hour free parking didn't work for the restaurants. It worked for everybody else that was going to work somewhere and parking their car and taking up space. So restaurant customers didn't have any. Let's uh, get another perspective from Todd Hoffley from the Liberty Village Residents Association. Hi, Todd. What What's your take on that? Um, I would agree, actually, with Mr. Carbone. If we were going to be just concerned about a one-minute increase in speed between Bathurst and Jarvis, then no. Uh, that, that, that this would then need to be reconsidered. However, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the reliability of the streetcars, and that can only happen when the cars have been removed, partially removed from the street. Because let's remember, cars are still allowed on King Street. You can still drive up in front of Mr. Carbone's restaurant, drop off your people, drive around the block, park in a parking lot, and walk the block into his space. So Liberty Village, um, for example, uh, has an employment district. There are 600 businesses and 11,000 employees. We are not within the pilot project. But this has been, and 
it is more than 90% of our neighborhood that supports this. This has been transformational for those commuters. We would sometimes come out trying to get downtown to a job in the financial district, or say, for example, if you live up at Young and Eglinton, you would come down the Eglinton subway, but you have to come and work here at Sumer Radio in Liberty Village. Well, you'd have to hop on a King Streetcar, which goes completely choked. Sometimes you'd be waiting for four, five, six streetcars. Sometimes if you missed those because they would bunch so rapidly together, you'd be waiting for 25 minutes in a freezing cold winter, you know, February to get on a streetcar and get to work. Our residents, of which there are now 10,000, we will be adding 6,000 more residents within the next oh two God. years to Liberty Village. This is their yeah. lifeline, and it's chopping up to 20 minutes in each direction off of their commute. So this isn't about the time a streetcar goes from Bathurst to Jarvis. What it is is it's about the reliability of the system. And if that reliability hadn't been happening, then we wouldn't have seen a 16% increase in the number of ridership along King Street. So I, I, I understand what Mr. Carbone is saying, and you know, to 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 I, I think the city can do a better job in terms of supporting local small businesses during these types of uh, city building infrastructure developments, whether it's the Eglinton West build, whether it's St. Clair, whether it's Roncesvall, uh, what's very important to note is those, those streets, St. Clair and Roncesvall right now, are booming. Is there anything else that you're going to try with the city or are you resigned? No. Well, you, you know, like they've made up their mind November the 12th, 2017. And you know what I've done to get attention? I got attention, and nothing helps. They they promised a compromise. They promised to do changes. They never come to see us. What changes would you like? And every time we went to the mayor's office for a change or or a, a, a compromise, it was you know they they just you know play charades. Todd, what would you like to leave us with? I would just actually like to end with a quote from the restaurant owner of La Fenice, uh, who is directly beside Mr. Carbone on uh, well, King not Street direct. West. It's, yeah, it's a little it's, further it's, down it's, the block. It's, it's yeah. within 50 meters yeah. of his restaurant. Um, and uh, she says, business has never been better for us. We have lots of customers who live and work in the area and are more likely to be pedestrians and use transit for them getting around is so much better. This myth that most of our customers are driving to us in the pilot project has killed that business. Well, it's just not true. After a year in place, people who want to dine at La Fenice are still driving here and figuring out how to manage with the new rules. As long as they keep coming, we'll know that our food is worth it. End quote. That was Al Carbone, the unofficial mayor of King Street and owner of the Kit Kat Bar and Grill, and Todd Hoffley from the Liberty Village Residents Association. I'm Jane Brown. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Sandra in Toronto phoned to explain why she supports Jody Wilson-Raybould. My opinion of her has definitely changed. It's actually become stronger. I uh, actually uh, admired her for coming out and just speaking her truth. Even though she's going against the grain by every standard, but still talking her truth, she's done it for the greater good of Canadians. I mean, people need to see past that. The fact that Trudeau calls himself a feminist, I mean, and he uh, didn't even give her the time of day. 
I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but what she's done up to this point, I, I admire her for it. Rafi in Scarborough called to share his frustration on taxes and the many areas where he feels the government is money-grabbing. My goodness, gas prices went up, the carbon tax, TTC fare went up, and the more money the politicians have is like they still complain they want more money. Like I just feel like packing my bags and leave the country. I want back my, my Canadian tire membership because Canada is the most taxing country in the entire universe. And guess what? They never have any money. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. Great calls as always, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from previous Fightback caller Dave in Brampton who's sounding much happier than the first time he spoke with us. Dave explains the changes in care he now receives and what a difference this has made to his life. About uh, roughly two and a half months ago, uh, the occupational therapist, my uh, wife's case manager, and they all showed up and they talked. And when uh, the case manager uh, informed me that I was getting 12 hours a month respite, I uh, have gone to appointments or uh, go out and uh, maybe to the lumber yard if I need something or whatever. It was total, a total shock. I, it was unexpected, and uh, I welcomed it. <laughs> and that proves that the noisy or the squeaky wheel gets the oil. That's just for me. She gets uh, uh, seven hours a week for washing, one hour every morning, and they also give me another three hours every week to go shopping. I found a big difference just with that 12 hours. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I found a big difference. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. <laughs>